Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. All your notifications are off? Yes. I don't even know if those have ever been on. Hey everyone, hoping you all had a safe and great holiday break. Thank you for coming to us here on Reppin. I'm Evelyn, your host. She is a former three-time championship wrestler with the WWE under the ring name AJ Lee. Going beyond the ring, she's a mental health advocate and serves as an ambassador to the Jed Foundation and the National Alliance on Mental Illness. She was honored with NAMI's 2018's Multicultural Outreach Award. She is also the co-writer of IDW's Glow and the Dungeons & Dragons comic book series alongside actress Amy Garcia. She and Amy have also joined forces and created Scrappy Heart Productions. Their mission as American Latinx storytellers is to develop diverse stories with universal themes. And if that's not enough, she is also a New York Times bestselling author of Crazy Is My Superpower, how I triumphed by breaking bones, breaking hearts, and breaking the rules. Her book is an honest look at her evolution from being a scrappy Puerto Rican girl in an unstable home, struggling with poverty, homelessness, and mental illness. She talks about how she found her escape through comics and wrestling. Find out how she turned her weakness into her greatest strength. So come on, let's say hello to AJ Mendez. AJ, it's great to see you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I I earlier mentioned that I kind of feel like a dumpster fire, but that's, I think that's just the year. (laughs) This is in the air, isn't it? Yeah, it's on trend. Right. Now, I know that you grew up in New Jersey, East Coast, all right? Yes. And you're the youngest of three, and that you are of Puerto Rican descent. But give people a little bit more of a formal introduction of, you know, how people know you, and a little bit about what your upbringing was like. So I'm AJ Mendez. I am currently um, a writer, a mental health advocate and speaker an author, but for a very long stretch of my life, I beat people up for money. (laughs) (laughs) I was a pro wrestler with the WWE. So it was quite the the pivot, the second life, I call it. I think you had like four lives in there, right? Just from that layout. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Now, AJ, I love that you said that you beat people up for life. You're tiny. (laughs) Yeah, that was sort of my so at first it was kind of the, the like the obstacle in the way the business was all giant men or Amazon, you know, glorious uh, women or Pam Anderson type. So everything I'm not ever <laughs> in any way, it, it did not welcome me, but I thought that there was an edge, an entry point because they didn't have that. And so I, I, that was kind of my shtick as a wrestler was I was tiny and threw myself around like a like a spider monkey. Right. But I have to say, you might be tiny but mighty because you are in incredible shape. In fact, you sent me some pictures that, you know, it will be posted. But I actually got those pictures while I was eating pizza. And you have like a six pack. And you, I was like, okay, I'm going to put the pizza down. 
But you are in incredible shape and you really broke boundaries in a male-dominated arena. But before we get into that, I want to start with your book. You detailed it in your book, which is a New York Times bestseller called Crazy is My Superpower, which I read and I loved. It's a biography. You really take on some incredibly difficult topics, but with such a sense of humor. And you made very difficult subjects palatable and digestible. So tell me a little bit about your background and what your book was about. Oh my gosh. Um, That is the greatest review I could ever get because that was very much the goal is to, I think a lot of times when we're talking about really heavy subjects and my, my autobiography kind of runs the gamut of a very tumultuous childhood that included severe poverty and homelessness, drug use uh, within my family, physical abuse, and eventually mental illness. And so really just hit like all the Lifetime movie uh, <laughs> plot points all in one book. That can get really either melodramatic or it can get really, it can be like throwing yourself a pity party or it can be so scary that people don't want to touch those subjects and they want to whisper about it and be very delicate. If we're really delicate and we're afraid of these conversations, we're not going to have them and they're going to forever be shrouded in the stigma. The way that I can talk about it and get people more comfortable talking about it is to uh, take the piss out a little bit and make fun of myself. (laughs) And, um, and so that's just always been like a, my defense mechanism, but I realized it really, it, it knocks down other people's defenses and they become more comfortable joking about it themselves and seeing some of the situations in their own lives. And what I felt was successful with like the aftermath of the book was people were able to have that conversation about mental health. If it was with me for the first time at like autograph signing, it really started a conversation, especially in this like wrestling community that is known to be like tough and like solve problems with slamming a chair over your head. You know, it's not like a huggy, you know, emotional kind of group of fan base. And, right. and it opens up to that, to those topics. I love that you said that Can you tell me a little bit about some of the background that you grew up with? I know that you had young parents. You're the youngest of three. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of topics that you tackled were drug use, dysfunction, bipolar disorder, trying to fit in, self-acceptance. But tell me a little bit about some of your early experiences that resonated with you that happened then, but sort of shaped who you are today and how you view the world. Um, We lived in a very bad neighborhood. Having an apartment in the first place was a blessing because we had spent so many years living in a car or living in, um, I remember we lived in a, a, in a screened-in porch during the New Jersey winter. They were in motels. And, and so we were very fortunate to have a, the space in the apartment. But somebody broke into it and I was home alone. And I believe I was about, oh gosh, I can't even remember the age, maybe 11 or 12. And I had to just fight a person off and that and it worked and I protected myself and that kind of being that that sort of mind frame at it as a 12 year old as this kid made me realize a I can take care of myself I felt strangely emboldened in my own power that I you know could be this this powerful person and, and I had felt so weak for so much of my life it really is this like perfect story to to highlight what my the essence of what my childhood was, and it was you know these scary situations put onto a child that I didn't think anything of. 
but it's kind of parted me into this warrior that I am now. Surviving that just made me feel, uh, there were tiny moments in my life where I felt like I had strength and a lot of it came from physical aggressiveness, fights in school. And, and it was just this, as unhealthy as it is, these were moments that made me feel like I had some sort of power back in my hand and probably led me to professional wrestling. Now, because I did my homework, I know a little bit about your background. I think it's really important to kind of back it up and put that in a little bit of context because it's important that there's a better understanding of what you grew up around. Your family fought a lot. Yes. And you talked about being very poor. Mm -hmm. Can you detail a little bit about what, how you would describe yourself as a child? And then also a little bit about sort of your family dynamics and what was happening in your family so we can understand the position that you were in when you had to defend yourself. My family solved problems with their fists and um, we were not a like a huggy, lovey family. You had to defend yourself early on. And I always say like my parents created this like baby gladiator sort of training ground where right. my, bro- my brother and my sister and I would like, they would have us practice how to fight on each other just because that's how they grew up. Like they would get jumped, you know, in, in the street walking to school. So we had to be tough at a really young age. I think I got in my first fight when I was about seven or eight. I can't remember, but I was rewarded. I was like treated like I did, I had accomplished this great thing by being able to defend myself against this boy who's much bigger than I was. And so that was kind of the, the world I was in. My my parents' relationship was dysfunctional, and their relationship with us w- was not healthy. <laughs> um, right, right. And so there was just a, there was a lot of um, uh, physicality that was normalized that I've had to kind of unlearn. Right. As I grew up, from growing up, having to learn to be very physical at you know at a very young age. I mean, you probably knew more about how to protect yourself physically at seven than I do now. You were a physically smaller child. And now certainly as a woman, you are petite, but that never stopped you. Mm-hmm. It never deterred you in any way, personally or professionally. But what did you learn from growing up that may have been hard at the time that you take with you now in a very positive way? Uh, it really was the, as much as it's, it seems like very un- unhealthy, like I really do, I wouldn't change anything about my past and that this strange way my parents raised me because it taught me to to be in charge of my body. It taught me to be in charge of everything in my life. Like I could control with my hands and there was nothing that that I couldn't accomplish on my own. I could really just create any change that I wanted to see in my life. And so the lack of health for my family and, and for myself at a young age, even flying to film school and them telling me, you can't afford this, you probably shouldn't come here. (laughs) And just going anyway, I learned that the world is not going to allow me easy entry anywhere. And I was going to have to kind of like break down doors if I wanted to get anywhere. And so I kind of like that I had these mountains to climb because now, as I became an adult, nothing seems impossible, which is probably why I bounced from these insane careers. Because it's like, okay, I, cool, I climbed a mountain. Let's climb another one. Let's, let's see what else is out there. Nothing seems impossible to me. I always say I needed a hero, and I was so desperate for that and felt so weak. And there was this turning point in my youth, and I just realized I was going to have to be my own superhero and save myself. That's so great. I mean, the idea of being able to recognize that 
and then carving a path for yourself when you realize that no one's going to make those opportunities for you. Mm-hmm. Was there a specific moment and what were you sort of internally thinking that gave you the awareness and also the capability of turning that idea and that recognition into action? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I would probably say it was the biggest example would be after I got kicked out of film school, I, cause I couldn't afford it. And I was going to NYU to school of the arts and it was like, I thought that was the, the happy ending of the movie and like mm, credits. It's like, nope, <laughs> just to start, uh, got kicked out and realized I needed to like enter my safety career, which like for everyone is professional wrestling, right? Yeah. Everyone's back up. <laughs> On my resume. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and it just seemed like, how do you get into that business? Like, it's, it just it didn't make any sense how you even start. I didn't even have like a computer. Like, just, it was it was really hard to figure it out. But I ended up going to finding this like really helpful, like life changing wrestling school that was in the hood. I had to take two buses to get there. It was really dangerous, <laughs> but I just made this choice. I was a cashier. I was bouncing around between like a secretary job. I was just so depressed. And I was like, whatever. Like I had this crazy dream. Let me just go figure out how to do it and make it happen. I did that for two years. And then there was this out of nowhere audition where you had to pay to audition. So it was like, yeah, come on. Um, (laughs) It was so ridiculous, but I figured any chance is a chance. And I starved for a year like literally stole food from my job as a secretary. Like there was like a, a fruit tray in the okay. in, <laughs> I was I was like, I'm gonna do that. I did it for a year. I can never eat goat cheese again. Uh, okay. <laughs> that was, it was goat cheese and crackers for a year and saved up enough money and that's how I got signed. And that was like how I brought myself out of, out of poverty was sinking myself further into it <laughs> to save for this big opportunity. That was not a way people got signed. Normally, it was like models and actors and football players would be like scouted. And I was like, I'm going to force my way in there and figure it out. That was kind of the moment where I realized, oh, there isn't like just one path. And if there is a a very visible path, it might not be the one for you. You might have to figure out your own. And it's harder, but there's a reason no one's done it yet. Like you can be the first. Now I want to kind of go full circle to what we were just talking about earlier and tie this in. Again, I'm really just so struck by just how much of faith and, and the fact that you were unstoppable. I mean, you were stealing food. (laughs) I mean, that's pretty serious when you're so food insecure, taking another leap into something that is not traditional, like being a wrestler is not something that you think you do because you're taking on more risk. It would almost feel counterintuitive. Yeah. Because I'd be like, I need to get food. Let me go, you know, get a job and work at the gap. Meanwhile, you're like, I'm stealing food and this is what I want to do, which is completely, you know, not something that is safe and completely off the beaten path, but you did it. And here you are in a male dominated arena, to say the least. (laughs) Can you talk about how you broke stereotypes? Because they wanted you to play a damsel in distress and you totally went the other way. Tell me a little bit about that experience and and what you learned from it. So at the time, pro wrestling was very either like glam and sex pots 
or like giant men. And for me to be welcome in any way, I was going to have to conform and try to get as pretty, air quotes, as I could, their standards of it. So yeah, there was a time when my hair was dyed blonde and, you know, and... uh, and I have to interrupt you for just a second, though. Be pretty. You're so pretty. And I have no idea what the hell they're talking about. But okay, I understand. This is the context of what, the 90s at the time? Uh, maybe like 2009. 2000, right. Somewhere around there. Okay, 2009. But 90s too, then it was the same mind frame. Yeah. It was very much in that mind frame. It's very comic book characters, cliche, women that look like Jessica Rabbit. Yeah. So you came into a, a genre that you felt a tremendous amount of pressure to fit into these characters. Yeah. You know, there were offers that you, they could, you know, the closest I'll ever get to a double D is like a Dunkin' Donuts cup. Like it's just <laughs> not like, but that was the standard. Same and, girl. Same. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so there were these opportunities like, Hey, you could do this and make yourself look better. And, and I never did that stuff. But what I was used as in the company and I appreciated was this kind of role called a utility man which is you're skilled enough to make other people look better. And so my role was like all like the gorgeous models that came in. I would audition them. I would get them signed. I would train them and um, get them ready to be superstars. And I would like wait in this like developmental team. And just like that was my role. And I was okay with that. But I also knew that there was a hunger for something different because I watched wrestling and I was this nerdy kid who just liked superheroes. And these are real life superheroes, you know, wearing spandex and beating up bad guys. So, like, why weren't we catering to that fan? The first opportunity I, I got was on this, it was this really silly competition type show. Like, we were all signed, but it was like fake competitions. And I just was like, whatever, I'm going to like take a shot and show them exactly who I am. And I was like, I'm nerdy. I like look like this. Like, I didn't wear makeup on the show, I didn't do my hair. And I was like, okay, this is me. And fans like instantly connected to it. And the fans basically forced them to use me on the show because they were so vocal. Right. So I owe everything to the fans. They embraced me so much that these, the top brass went from telling me that nobody wanted to have sex with me. <laughs> like that was a, that was a critique to saying that it didn't matter and, and putting me in, into these main event, big spotlight roles. Okay. There's a lot of disturbing things about what you just said about. <laughs> The brass not wanting to have sex with you. But <laughs> the fans, they thought the fans wouldn't like me because I wasn't bangable. You know, again, there's so many things wrong with that, but that's a whole nother conversation. There is something I do want to draw attention to that I don't want it to just gloss over. When you are finally yourself, mm-hmm. you are petite, you're beautiful, you're quirky. My point being is talk about stepping up saying this is who I am and showing it. And that's what made you break barriers. That's where you found your stride. And that's where you really became successful. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what that moment was like for you? Yeah. I'm. I, what I had learned, and this is from my entire life, was that uh, like the worst could happen to me and I would survive. <laughs> I had survived so much. I really kind of went through life with this, like, well, what do I have to lose? And at that point, I didn't have anything to lose. I was going to stay in developmental forever and make everybody else a star. So what did I have to lose? You know, I was never going to be 
as good of a hot chick as everybody else was. (laughs) I was just not going to look like them. And so it was, I had to be the best version of myself. What I learned was that I was exactly what the fans were and they finally felt represented and seen. And that connection is, it is one of the strongest connections in, in the world when people can see themselves on screen. I owe everything to just embracing just who I am and throwing that out there. People like that. Even if they can't put their finger on it, they can tell when someone's not being genuine and when there's something off and like forced and they shrink away from it. I just was kind of like, fuck it, let's see what happens. And it worked. So I got really lucky. No, I think that's incredible. But again, I read your book and there were long stretches of time where self-acceptance was a challenge. And I think mm-hmm. even in general people, regardless of what background you're from or ethnicity or whatever, self-acceptance is something that if you're doing it authentically, it's hard. It's a worthwhile but difficult road. I think it's always something that you work on because it evolves. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it.
you said that the audience recognizes your authenticity and your voice. Was that moment also for you the moment where you realized that you accepted who you were and that that was your source of power? Was that the moment for you? A hundred percent. And in regular life, you were just, you know, not everyone gets to to wear spandex and fight people in front of 20,000 people, you know. Um, but in regular life, you're not getting like instant, you don't have 20,000 people either clapping or booing you. So you don't know. You're not getting like instant feedback. So there was this fear that uh, people were going to like boo me or like, you know, cartoon style throw tomatoes at me and like be like, oh, like, you know, like wear a push up bra. And we <laughs> didn't. Right. And to get that affirmation back. I've tried very hard to like let the, my wrestling fan base know how much they mean to me, but like I don't know if, if they can ever know what that meant to to like affirm me. You are good the way you are, and then we just kind of gave that back to each other for you know five six years that I was on the show. <laughs> that must have been such an incredible moment. Now I can't underscore enough actually how much you've overcome personally in your book. You've also detailed your bouts and your struggle with mental illness. Mm-hmm. Give people an understanding of what that struggle was like and why that was important for you to step up and really share so openly. It was terrifying to share it with people. I, uh, my, my family struggled with various types of mental illness, but a bipolar disorder being the one that was hereditary in, from my mother to me. And we didn't have a name for it. A huge issue in a lot of communities of color is this lack of acceptance of of that mental health conversation there's a lot of machismo and uh, we can just tough it out and this misconception that getting treatment is some sort of luxury for white people and it's just that's just something my family's lived for so long as my mother was struggling we ignored it and we thought she could tough it through hit very much a rock bottom and very soon after so did i and I ended up uh, overdosing and uh, putting myself in the hospital. And I was about 19, I think. That's one of the moments where, like, surviving it made me start my life over. I felt, like, reborn in a way where it was like, okay, I've hit rock bottom. I need to acknowledge that mental health is something we need, I need to take care of. And take care of us just as much as I do my physical health. It wasn't a conversation at that point I was ready to have with people. So it was something I didn't talk about. As I started wrestling, the character became a crazy chick. And she was supposed to be this like unstable sort of caricature. And so when I retired from wrestling, I had a guilt about that. And I wanted to talk to the fans who connected to her because of the mental health story. Which I really thought that it was the fans seeing who I really was through the character. They knew something was happening. And so when I wrote my, my memoir, I wanted to basically like come out of bipolar and talk about my mental health journey and share with the fans that they were right. Like they, whatever they were sensing, they were spot on. And that has fostered this new connection between us where now we, we are like this mental health community <laughs> and they go to like these nonprofit events. They go to like medical conferences where I'm doing keynote speeches. Like they are so supportive of the conversation now. And that's maybe the, the greatest thing I've ever done with my life is getting people to go to therapy and pr- get treatment and be less afraid of, of medication. And that was all from, from writing the book after I retired. That's incredible. I mean, 
just in the short amount of time that we've been talking, you've literally detailed enough experiences to last people like no kidding, like five lifetimes. (laughs) And they're, they're big, they're big things though, AJ. You can kind of look at it on the surface and be like, Oh, you were a wrestler. You know, that's great. That's entertaining. But using that as a vehicle to kind of address all of these other issues and then springboard off of that to being an advocate for mental health, you know, working to spotlight and break down the stigma. I mean, that's incredible. For you to write the book, you held nothing back and you shared a lot of um, the many problems that you guys were experiencing, one being the family dysfunction and then your bipolar illness. What was it like for you to to step out into the light, like writing that book? Was it scary at all? And how did you sort of cope with that and navigate that so you could finish the book? Oh, my gosh. So the, the book in the first place was one of these things where when I wanted to write it, the initial reaction was like, well, wrestlers are dumb. Wrestlers don't aren't writers. <laughs> I literally had like interviews where people were like, well, you're not a writer. Wrestlers can't be writers. I had um, pitch meetings where they were like, we're surprised that you're so so eloquent for a wrestler. Like it's, it's just literally one stereotype after another in life. <laughs> God, I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> and I had to basically get permission to write the book on my own. I didn't want a ghostwriter and I didn't want a co-writer because I thought that again, like I even if it sucked, like even structurally wasn't great, like I didn't graduate college. Like that's an, an editor can hold my hand and like make stuff right. But I needed it to be my voice. So going in that direction made me realize that I needed to keep going with that and kind of just open up so much of, of these things that I was ashamed of and hiding for so long. And then I wrote one first, one draft of the book and it was my first time really, really writing anything. So I, ha- I had to go back in and like write a whole nother draft. Like they were like, that's cute. Try. <laughs> <laughs> that's nice. But take it seriously this time. So it was like a hundred thousand words and then start over from, from word one. The second time around, because I had had this like first wing, it just like became so much easier to get lost in it. Right. And I realized writing the book became therapy in a way. And what I had realized was I was walking through life protecting my family and protecting these truths and being ashamed of them. And they were weight on my shoulder. And I had to release myself of these secrets and putting them in the book, put them into the world and whatever the world wants to do with it. They can do with it, but it's not mine anymore to carry. And that kind of freedom is what really helped me be so open in the book. I remember I had written a, a, a blog to kind of preface the bipolar of it all um, before the book came out. I don't know. I kind of wanted to like let people know what was coming. And I got my, my first gray hair because I was so stressed. <laughs> I was so scared. My husband and I were on a road trip and I was just like, I couldn't eat or like sleep. And I was like freaking out. And I was just like waiting to see what the reaction would be, like checking my phone. I was so scared. And I found my first gray hair. And the first message I got was an old acquaintance who was like, there's someone in my family that's bipolar. And I've never wanted to tell anybody. And now I can like get that off my chest. And I was like, that's why I did this. It's been worth it just for that one person. That's amazing. Mental illness is still, to this day, something that really not enough support or conversations are had. There is still a very strong stigma attached. So you doing that then even is really, nobody was, like nobody was talking about it. So I know once you put the book out, 
you have to do a lot of promos and, you know, book tours and to kind of push it out and let people know it's there. What were some of the reactions that you were getting immediately? And did your book accomplish what you had hoped? Yeah, I think my biggest fear was because I used the word, I used the word crazy. And I knew that was not going to be received in a way that sounded initially respectful. It sounds rude. It sounds disrespectful. It sounds like it's taking it slightly. And I knew that was going to happen. And I did that on purpose because I kind of want to push people into the deep end of the pool and say like, we just talk about this. Like we can make jokes. We can like have like more of a casual conversation and taking a bit of the the power out of the word and turning it around and changing your perspective on it. You can change a weakness into a strength by just shifting your perspective. A character was a crazy chick. And if people were in real life throwing that word at me in a, 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 a derogatory way, why couldn't I repurpose that as, as a weapon? And so that I was really scared of. And so I reached out to nonprofit mental health organizations, almost like for like a thumbs up. Like, is this okay? Or do you guys get it? And was very much taken under the, under their wings of the National Alliance for Mental Illness, NAMI, and the Jed Foundation embraced me with open arms and welcomed me into the, you know, into their, their club. And then when I would do signings, fans, the most powerful thing I've ever done in my life. And I mean, I don't know if I'll ever be able to do it again because of COVID world, but fans would hold my hand and they would cry and they would say some sort of mental health journey that they've been on or someone in their family has been on. And you could tell it was the first time they were saying it and I could like see the weight come off their shoulders. And it was like, give me that weight. I'll take it. I can handle it. Give me all of your stories. That's fine. That's what I'm here for. So after that book tour, I was like, if that was the last thing I ever did in life and get hit by a bus, that'd be fine. Well, <laughs> we hope that doesn't happen on either fronts. I love both ways. It's fine. I think the book is a really incredible book and it's it makes something that is incredibly painful and private and you make it palatable and digestible because you know most people don't want to touch subjects that are so personal and are so hard but you share your experiences with tremendous honesty and you're able to sort of diffuse it and deliver it in a way where people can receive the message. Thank you. I think you very successfully towed a line that was very hard to do. People should absolutely go get this book because <laughs> it's really a great read. Thank you so much. Now, you had touched upon the fact that we are living in batshit crazy times. Yes. <laughs> and you and I talked a little bit before we got on this session, the importance of addressing mental health in a situation that we all find ourselves in. Can you talk a little bit about your position and what you're doing to educate and help Yes. So, so what I noticed right away was in, on social media, the most engagement that was happening as this was all going down um, was sharing lifelines and resources for if you're in, the, in a crisis. And that really concerned me. And so I, that's been something I've wanted to get out as often as possible. The crisis text line, or which is 741-741 if anyone needs it. And the this um, suicide prevention hotline, just one eight hundred two seven three talk. I, I realized that people were not used to sitting with their thoughts and not being distracted in the in the way that the world feels like very hopeless. There is a lot of mental health struggles happening right now, and so the first thing people can do is look for uh, telemedicine. 
there's ways that you can talk to therapists online and it's a lot cheaper. Also, just like going to nonprofit organizations' websites like NAMI.org or the Dead Foundation, a great resource for teens and like college age students. The TrevorProject.org is, is a wonderful resource for LGBTQIA plus a community. The Loveland Foundation is it specifically for Black Americans who are especially under stress and pain right now. And so at first it became, okay, I wanted to get more of the word out on these, these mental health organizations and how people can help themselves. Just little things that you can do every day. You can keep a journal, check in with yourself. You can give yourself grace and realize that you don't need to get so much work done every day. Like just living is a lot of work. Give yourself a break. And listening to your mental health and those that cloud, I call it, I call it my dark days. Like realize that that's not you. It is feeling that is going to be temporary, but give it a day. Stay in bed all day if, if that's what it's asking for that day. And then as time has gone on, I've realized that I've, need to step out more for my community. Black, Indigenous, people of color right now in this country are under attack. And we have a very difficult relationship with the health system and like getting access. Most of our insurance doesn't cover quality practitioners, nor do we have practitioners that look like us. Yes. It's very hard to, if even if you go to therapy, you might not stay there. Because there is a lack of understanding of our cultural norms and values. So there's always this miscommunication in the conversation. I've been kind of feeling like the layers and there's just so many boundaries to people of color getting treatment or even starting that conversation. And so that's become something I've been working very hard on now to get those resources out to communities who need them and to see how far back and structurally this goes. It's, it's it is a systemic problem. Yeah, as you're talking, what struck me is that how many barriers are in place. Mm-hmm. And before we even get to that, culturally speaking, I mean, you talked about being Puerto Rican, I'm Asian American. Going to therapy and dealing with mental challenges isn't even something that we're encouraged to talk about. Mm-hmm. Not because it's not good, it's just not sort of embedded in our culture. So that's the first huge step that we'd even have to overcome. Mm-hmm. And then we're hitting all of these walls. So AJ, you have really become very much a champion for people struggling with mental health. And throughout your life and sort of in in a whole bunch of different situations, be it wrestling, being a Latina, being a petite woman, you really work to change perspectives. So what do you think it takes to dismantle a stigma? The key to shattering stigma is genuinely education and empathy. Sometimes that's having empathy for yourself, like giving yourself a break, giving yourself grace, and genuinely just taking it one day at a time and arming yourself with an education on the terms, people you can reach out to. There's free resources. And never be afraid to contact a lifeline. They're not just for if you think you might be in danger. You can call them for questions and if you need someone to speak to. That's so great. We really need to continue conversations and to support those who are struggling with mental health challenges. Now, moving on to another life that you have um, sort of (laughs) into this time period, you are also now partnering with Amy Garcia. 
from Lucifer, Dexter, George Lopez show, and you created a production company called Scrappy Heart Productions. And your mission statement is, and I'll read this so I don't butcher it, (laughs) is as American Latinx storytellers dedicated to developing diverse stories with a universal themes that will make you laugh, cry, or fill our comments section with facepalm emojis. Growing up, we didn't feel represented on screen. Tell me a little bit about your mission statements, what you're going to do with Scrappy Heart, and some of the content that we can expect to see from you guys and why that was important. One life definitely always leads into the other. When the book was successful, I was looking into optioning it and making it a TV show. And along the way, I realized that I wanted to write it myself. So I learned how to write television. It's what I went to school for, for my solid semester. Right. And so I took the circuitous route, but I got back here. And and I realized that like getting into this field, that there were not enough brown female voices that were telling our own story. Either, you know, they were almost part of a writer's room or were working on other people's stories. So I needed to see someone that looked like me on screen when I was growing up and I didn't have that. And so I literally had to put spandex on and become it for myself. <laughs> you know? <laughs> this theme of spandex keeps coming back. <laughs> it's so uncomfortable. <laughs> and you and, and you don't need it. You don't need it. I have been Send it over to me. I need help keeping some of that in. I mentioned more like jean shorts. It was so uncomfortable. I just wore jean shorts that after a while. It was ridiculous. So funny. But, so, you know, I, so I had to become like cape wearing superhero. And what Amy and I realized is that when we would go to these like comic con, fans would compare us because there was no other brown women at these comic cons. And so that's how we kind of met up, her and I. We were like, oh, it's just us. Let's join forces. And we wanted to take these characters who were normally either stereotypes or a supporting characters or just tiny, you know, sprinkles uh, on a story and make them the center of their own stories because that's been, they're incredibly interesting. Yeah. And that expanded to, to not just Latinas, but we want to, we want to tell stories for every voice that feels like they are not being heard. And so we started writing a comic book together. We've written a Glow comic book series. Now writing Dungeons and Dragons, writing a, a comic book series we both created on our own called East Side Saints. And we're writing a bunch of television shows and developing them with a bunch of wonderful partners. So it's going well. One of the major things, and this is a conversation that can go on forever, is gender. Mm-hmm. I love that you guys are recognizing your power, both as individuals and then also as a team. It's helmed by two talented and strong, intelligent women you and Amy, and you're really bringing perspectives and stories that need to be told to the forefront. Listen, I've asked this uh, from some of my other guests, but for people who are not minorities, can you help them understand why is it important to have these voices and these stories be told and be told from a way that is not perpetuating stereotypes? For my entire life, everything I digested on television and both movies was the world from a white perspective if i was included it was very you know i was oh that girl's brunette close enough um and so and then she was somehow like less desirable and so we have had that for so long and been it's such a small fraction of the stories that are out there in the world the idea of nothing about us without us 
is because there needs to be parity for how many perspectives are out there. It's not just people who are allies to our stories telling the stories. It is getting the authentic uh, perspective and having us behind the scenes as writers and producers and directors and actors. And that is the only way to put out not only our perspective, but how varied our perspective can be. We're not just border stories or immigration stories that fit. That is a huge part of our stories. But I'm a girl that grew up in New Jersey. Like, I'm a Jersey girl. Like, I don't see that. I don't see a brown Jersey girl on TV. So it really is just about leveling the playing field a little bit. It's not about giving handouts. It's about you can learn from our perspective as well. And if people can see themselves on TV, they will feel less alone as they grow up. And they will feel like they belong in all of these spaces. I hear you. But for people who will say, well, AJ, why can't any talented writer bring this to light? Why does it have to be specifically in your case from a Latin team? Like, why can't any talented writer do this? My response would be, we have spent our lives lifting up your stories and understanding your perspective, that it is our turn and that no one who hasn't walked in our shoes can tell our story and knows the intricacies and the layers and that we're not just stereotypes and we're not just these problem stories or, or victim stories. There is an authenticity that will enrich other people's lives if it comes from, uh, from our mouths onto the screen. Right. Because no one's really going to know our experiences as intimately yeah. as someone who's actually lived it. Yeah. I think that's so great. And it's so incredibly important to have that representation present. You did mention one project that you guys are working on that I want to <laughs> know more about, which is Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. Hey, listen, I'm going to show my age right now. I love the game back in the day. I was really bad at it. <laughs> a really bad nerd. But Tell me a little bit about why you are creating this project. And it almost comes full circle because at the start of this conversation, you talked about being a nerd. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about why you're bringing this project to life. The first thing I ever wrote, which is like mind-blowing to me, was a comic book. Uh, I didn't have toys. I lived in a motel room, but I had a dollar notebook from CVS with spiral notebook, and I would draw a comic book in it. It was the first time I really realize the power of writing where you can be, create a world and be anywhere in a lot of ways being a writer is like being the dungeon master where you are creating the world and you are like putting these people in it and, and putting you know obstacles for them to overcome and so we developed this wonderful relationship with idw publishing and first glow series was successful when dungeons and dragons came up as an opportunity to us it was like the perfect time because we could put in these characters that were so representative of a different perspective. So our two main characters are, one is a, a woman who is, I guess, like in the real world, she would be equivalent to like a, like a 60-year-old woman, like very Sarah Connor, badass, awesome. Like, oh, I love her so much. I love Sarah Connor. Um, love Sarah Connor. Yeah. Really one of the early examples and leaders of a badass woman in films yeah so she's definitely in that vein and um yeah she's like you know in in our world she'd be like the six-year-old woman and was like, why can't she be still be badass at 60 and then our other lead is this woman who they had discovered this body of a viking they thought it was a male because it was buried on the top of a hill it was a hero's burial and it had this huge flash in its head and that had healed over 
So it had been this this man had been hit in the head with an axe and survived and kept fighting, which is badass. And then we figured out it was a woman. There was a lot of like this scientist community that was just like up in arms because women were in Vikings that were fighting in battle. It was like, yeah, they were. She got a hero's burial. So we made her the star of our story and she's just this big, like hulking, badass woman with a giant scar. And it was like we were so excited to have these different types of women that never get to be the hero. You know, you never get to see older women or bigger women be be the love interest and be the superhero that saves the day. That's so awesome. So those are our leads and we were just so excited to to play with them in that world and just like live our fantasy. <laughs> I love it. You know, overall, I love how aware you are towards the importance of diversity of many things, you know, ethnicity, size, gender, age. And you're not only aware of it, but you're actively doing things that support and promote that perspective. Going forward, you found power by being yourself and not (laughs) fitting into a box that that world wanted you to fit in. You also figured out it's about making your opportunities. I'm sorry, you got more out of one semester at NYU than most people in four years. <laughs> because there's a lot of people that graduated from Tisch, which is a fantastic school and not working. And you're, you know, doing a production company and you've done all these great things. So again, there's another instance of you repeating your pattern of recognizing to carve your own path and to step out of your box, and now you're creating characters in your production company and Dungeons and Dragons, where you're not having your stereotypical characters, you're having characters that will help young people see that there is value and beauty and strength in women in in being older. So the whole ageism thing is a whole nother thing that we can get to. Did you recognize that consciously, or was this something that you sort of just find yourself doing because it's who you are um it's very much my mission in life look i i've known loneliness and a pain that from my youth once i knew it i realized that my mission in life was to make sure no one else had to feel that and do anything i could to help people feel less alone and that kind of just became my mission statement for life and that thread that leads me through every single project is is how can i use this voice if people are listening to me for whatever reason, I better be saying something worthwhile. And to me, that is helping people feel less alone and worthy just as they are. I think it's it's important to, for me at least, to recognize that you're really doing everything that you possibly can personally and certainly professionally by taking what you've learned and sort of putting it out there in a positive way. So how would you define representation? Hmm. Um. I think that, like, obviously, like, race is a huge thing um, mm-hmm. yeah. for me, A, because I was a very Americanized Puerto Rican. So I was somewhere in the middle of these two cultures. Yeah, absolutely. Being a child of two cultures and not fitting in either. Exactly. And so you kind of feel like, you know, you have to put in each world and either one really wants you. Or uh, I always say that, like, it's like, you know, none of the fun, but all of the racism. Um <laughs> That's so messed up, but what a great tagline. <laughs> so true. That's amazing. But that was a huge part was like, you know, embracing my last name and and, and realizing uh, just walking through life, just representing my family was the first, was my first experience representation, not being ashamed of where I came from. But then it was really just learning 
people were going to judge my size and my looks and my socioeconomic background. Representation became so important to me because I wanted to, instead of being ashamed of those things or people using them against me, was to to find the beauty in them and to make them my greatest strengths and my things that I'm the most proud of. So to me, representation is fighting for marginalized people in any capacity and being a voice for people who who cannot use their own. That's so great. I think it's something you learned very young and it's sort of threaded <laughs> through. If you can help sign us off, let me know who you are and what you represent. This is AJ Mendez and I represent the underdog. With huge thanks to AJ Mendez for hanging out. I loved my time with her. Make sure you keep up with AJ through her social media. As always, links are provided in the show description. Next up is Benjamin Von Wong, an activist and an unbelievable photographer. The style of his work can be described as being at the intersection of fantasy and photography. You see, he combines everyday objects with powerful, socially important messages. His work has attracted brands like Starbucks, Dell, and Nike, and he's generated over 100 million views for causes like ocean plastics to electronic waste. Here's a sneak peek of my conversation with Benjamin. I think one of the things that never gets the credit is what are the things that have always been there that were just invisible, that we never paid attention to, that have allowed us to be who we are. Hey, my name is Benjamin Von Wong, and don't miss my episode of Reppin coming up next. As always, Reppin is available on all of your favorite podcast platforms, so subscribe and share with your friends and leave us a review. You can always hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Reppin Podcast and follow me on Instagram at Reppin underscore podcast. Thanks always to my crew, Nelson Pinheiro and Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.